Good morning, everyone. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Would you uh, pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful for this gift of new life that we have in your Son's name. Grateful for the chance to come and worship you here this morning. So thankful, Lord, for your ongoing, sustaining presence and work in our lives. Lord, for all the ways you care for us and bless us. Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us to enter into worship, to bring glory to your name through our service. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine with me for a moment that you're Mary. You wake up early, long before dawn. It's dark, but you can't go back to sleep. You step outside and you breathe deeply. The cool, dry air is tinged with the sweet smell of hay, but the animals barely stir. It's still and quiet. All you can hear is the dry scraping of your sandals on the sandy soil. For the briefest of moments, your mind is at rest, but almost immediately the searing pain of grief tears everything apart. Tears well up in your eyes, a tightness forms in your chest, your throat closes up as you try to stuff it down, fighting to keep the sorrow from running wild once again. At some point you realize you're almost at the tomb, compelled to move towards the very place you dread the most. The darkness above you has shifted, softening slightly from impenetrable black to a cold, dark gray. The crushed limestone path under your feet seems to glow ever so slightly, absorbing and then reflecting what little light the dark sky has released from its grip. You stop, suddenly. The stone, it's... Somehow, how can this be? The stone, it's, it's, it's the tomb, it's, it's open? Who would do this? Was it not enough that they treat him as no more than a common criminal? What kind of person would desecrate a tomb and disturb the dead? How could this situation get any worse? You turn and run Sandals slapping wildly at the way in front of you. Thoughts racing through your head. They need to know. Someone must do something. As you sprint towards Peter's house, the dark gray skies overhead slide slowly higher and higher, displaced by a faint burnt amber glow in the east. John is already there with Peter. You ignore their confused stares and blurt out, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. As the words come tumbling out, you realize there's this tinge of anger in your voice. Nothing makes sense anymore. As you pause to catch your breath, Peter and John drop their tools and they dash down the dirt path. You're left standing there, 
alone. The soft sounds of fires being lit and breakfast being prepared drift through the air. The animals next to you shuffle restlessly in their pens, hungry for food. A bird darts by overhead. You look up and realize dawn is about to break. This is the scene we experience with Mary on that first day of the week, 2,000 years ago. A morning filled with grief and sorrow and confusion and running and questions. So many questions. There are no lilies, no Easter dresses, no fancy brunches. They had seen their friend betrayed condemned, beaten, crucified. They were there when his broken body was gently wrapped in burial cloths and laid in the tomb. Everything had happened so quickly, too quickly. But there was no turning back now. Nothing could undo this terrifying travesty of justice. The cross was clearly the end of the line for everyone. The light of the world seemed to have been consumed by darkness until dawn broke on that first day of the week when they saw the empty tomb and their lives were changed forever. The way John tells the story, as you just heard it, it breaks up into three scenes that we're going to look at this morning. The first centers on Peter and John. The second scene zeroes in on Mary and her encounter with Jesus. And the third brings Jesus himself to the disciples in the upper room. And what we see in every scene is that the resurrection totally transforms the first disciples. Each encounter sets them on a new trajectory in life. And the risen Lord continues to set people on new trajectories today, bringing the dead to life as he ushers in his glorious kingdom in all its power and majesty. So let's look at the first scene. As we just heard from John chapter 20, after Mary reports her confusion at the stone being rolled away, Peter and John, they race to the tomb, right? John gets there first, but then look at verse 6. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloths, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. The stone being rolled away was certainly a big deal, right? If you've seen photos of these tombs, they were often sealed by these enormous rocks or stones that would be extremely difficult to move by yourself. So it was strange to see it moved, but at the same time didn't necessarily prove anything, aside from the fact that someone had been messing with the grave, However, Simon Peter goes one step further, like literally one step further, climbing into the tomb to see if Jesus' body is still there. And what he sees is shocking. There's no smell. There's no corpse. No sign of death. 
Instead, Peter finds himself staring at the linen cloths they had wrapped Jesus in, except now they're empty. If grave robbers had, for some reason, chosen to ransack the grave, they would have taken the cloths and left the body. But instead, the disciples were left staring at the cloths and missing the body. Notice the details here. The grave and the cloths themselves were undisturbed as if Jesus had somehow passed through them. To top it off, look at verse 7. The face cloth was folded in a place by itself. Clearly it had been removed carefully and set to one side. So you can understand their confusion, right? Because this kind of thing, it just doesn't happen. Right? It never has. Dead bodies go to their tombs and they stay there. Death is a one-way trip. And when graves were robbed, as they sometimes were, they were ransacked. No thief stops to fold the laundry after tearing apart your house looking for valuables. And certainly nobody would be interested in the enormous difficulty of moving a dead body, which was, after all, worth absolutely nothing. The text then says that the other disciple, who is the Apostle John, clambers into the tomb behind Peter, and when John sees the empty cloth, suddenly everything, it just clicks for him. Look at verse 8. He saw and believed. He saw and believed. Perhaps in that moment, John recalled the miracle of Lazarus' return from the dead and, and Jesus' words to Martha, right? When Jesus reassured her by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Perhaps John recalled any number of signs that Jesus had performed during his ministry. The text doesn't tell us. But in that moment, the Holy Spirit opened John's heart to true saving faith in Jesus Christ. He believed and he experienced new life as a result. Perhaps some of you, blessed to grow up in the church, discipled by Christian parents, surrounded by a community of faith, have had a similar experience. At a very young age, you saw and you believed. It was that simple. That's a beautiful gift from God to be like the Apostle John, to see and to believe. Nothing fancy, no grand conversion narrative, just a straightforward faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Praise God the Lord. Don't be frustrated at that. Don't minimize it. Celebrate it. Now, obviously, John didn't know or understand everything at this moment. As the very next verse makes clear, right? Look at verse 9. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. In other words, at this moment in time, John didn't have a complete grasp of how all the Old Testament scriptures fit together to explain Everything that had happened during that Passover week, that had not yet been revealed to him. John was probably one of the youngest disciples, and he had a lot of growing up ahead of him. 
But what mattered most was not his grasp of theology or doctrine. That would come in good time. What mattered most in that moment was his faith in Jesus. Like John, you too may be young. You may not have everything figured out just yet. You may not know or understand all the finer points of theology and doctrine. None of that matters. What really matters is what happens next. You've been given this gift of faith. You believe. Celebrating that grace from God today is so important. But at the same time, your life stretches out ahead of you. The Apostle John outlived all the other disciples with a ministry that lasted possibly 50 or 60 years after that first surprising day of the week. Most of you will live even longer than that. You have 50, 60, 70, maybe 80 Easter Sundays ahead of you. How will you use this time to serve God in his kingdom? How will you use this time to invest in and disciple others? How will you use this time to grow? Look, every time you choose to forgive someone, you grow. Every time you stop to pray for God's help or wisdom or intervention, you grow. Every time you give away what was never really yours to begin with, you grow. Every time you choose to serve someone else, even when nobody else notices, you grow. Every time you see pride well up in your heart and you pray for God's help to give you humility instead, you grow. And over time, all these little steps that you take, even now as a child, right now, these small moments, these little tiny decisions, they accumulate over time to something so much greater as God shapes and forms and molds you into conformity with his son. So if you, like John, have been given this gift of seeing and believing, don't let it go to waste. Take that tiny seedling of faith and, and nurture and tend it until its roots go down deep into the heart of God and your branches extend out into the world. So John and Peter, they returned to their homes, but what happened to Mary? Right? We, she was the first one to the tomb. She was the first to recognize something had happened, but then what? And so our second scene begins in verse 11 in our text, where we read, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Her world had been turned upside down, right? Whatever complicated tangle of emotion she had been struggling so hard to keep under control unraveled in an instant, and she wept. But even in the middle of her grief, she couldn't keep from looking inside the tomb. Look at verse 12. Inside, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, angels almost always spark fear with their awesome appearance, but here their tone is gentle and their presence a comfort. They simply ask a question, woman, why are you weeping? 
It's not a rebuke, but it is a gentle challenge. In her grief, Mary has yet to connect the dots in the same way that John did. The only explanation that makes makes sense to her is that someone, for some unknown reason, has taken Jesus away. I imagine the angels in that moment sitting there with this knowing look on their faces. They clearly know what's happened. And they see Jesus standing there right behind her, the resurrected Lord, triumphant. Perhaps it's something about the way they're looking over her shoulder, or perhaps she just senses someone out of the corner of her eyes. But she turns around and comes face to face with her Lord. And yet, according to verse 14, she still did not know that it was Jesus. Sometimes grief, despair, and confusion, they cloud our vision, right? Sometimes the mountains of stress and worry and anxiety and fear, they they, they narrow our focus. And the result is that we too can no longer see Jesus' presence in our lives, even when he's right there in front of us. Jesus promised to never leave us nor forsake us, to be with us always to the end of the age. And yet in moments of sickness, loneliness, suffering, right when we need Jesus the most, the cares and worries of our lives slowly close the blinds to the light of the world. Our only source of strength and hope. So Mary, she She looks at Jesus, but she doesn't see him. Whether it's the tears literally covering her eyes, or maybe more likely the extreme anguish she's experiencing over the death of her Lord, she remains blind to the truth. Jesus' response is filled with tenderness. Look at verse 15. Woman. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now Mary, of course, answers literally. She wants to know, where's the body that was in the tomb? But even in this moment, Jesus is searching her heart, looking deeper, probing gently for a response of faith. His question hangs in the air for us today also. Whom are you seeking? A friend? A teacher, someone to affirm you, a work of miracles, a solution to your problems, a, a quick fix to get through the day. Or the Lord, the God who made the world and everything in it. When you open your Bible, when you pray, when you go into your small group, when you, when you sing along to that worship playlist in your car, when you come to church on Sunday, as you sit here right now today, whom are you seeking? Really? Because the one who stood before Mary as dawn broke on that first day of the week 2,000 years ago, the one whose tomb stands empty to this day, the one whom we worship and celebrate this morning, he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the water of life. He is the light of life. He is the author of life. He is the bread of life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is life itself and out of his great love for us extends this offer of eternal life. 
if we will turn and put our trust in him. Now look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni. Remember how Jesus summoned Lazarus by name to come out of the darkness of his tomb and into the light? Well, so too here does Jesus call Mary by name, drawing her out of the darkness of despair and into the joyous reality of his resurrection. Right, The curtains of grief that had previously clouded her vision are now thrown wide open. And she finally sees her risen king. Oh, to bask in that moment with Mary, right? You can't blame her for rushing forward to embrace Jesus. But there's work to be done. And so Jesus closes this scene with a commission for Mary. Look at verses 17 and 18. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. First, I want you to notice, the risen Jesus was someone you could actually cling to. Right? You can't cling to a ghost or a spirit or a hallucination. And yet Mary clung to Jesus. She didn't just touch him. She grabbed a hold of him and she didn't want to let go. Although his resurrection body was different in many ways, as ours will be also, it was still a body. There was, there was something tangible and, and real and physical and, and grabbable and present. The first fruits of a redeemed and restored creation, giving us a glimpse of our own future inheritance. But second, and perhaps most astonishing, Jesus then commissions Mary, an unmarried woman who was once possessed by seven demons. He sends her to to go bring this good news to the other disciples. That's why Jesus says, don't cling to me. Not because he's rejecting her affection, but because he's sending her on a mission. Mary, a mere woman whose testimony was rarely considered to be trustworthy. Remember in Luke, we hear that the disciples, when they hear the testimony of these women, they dismiss it. That's an idle tale. But Jesus doesn't hold us responsible for the results The question is, will we be faithful to do as he commands? Will we sow the seed and let God be the one to bring the growth? Francis Schaeffer once said that there are no little people in God's kingdom. No rejects, no has-beens, no bench warmers, no third-string subs that never get any playing time. The world lauds experts and professionals. God He looks for humility, faithfulness, service. So don't ever believe the lie that you are not enough. God created you, specifically you, 
for a purpose. More than that, he died for you, specifically you, knowing more about you than you know even about yourself. And now, having raised you to new life in Christ, God has plans to work through you specifically in whatever way he can, however big or even small, as he grows and expands his kingdom. If you, like Mary, will simply follow his call. Well, we shift gears now and move to our third and final scene, the disciples hiding in their room, doors locked, fearful of who might come knocking at the door. It's like when I go to a hotel and even though I might be up on like the 15th floor down some long corridor behind a steel computer-controlled door, what do I do when I get in there? First thing I do is I turn the deadbolt and put the security bar across as well. It's like it doesn't matter how nice the hotel is, there's still this fear I have that someone's going to somehow break in the door, which, by the way, has never happened in 48 years, ever. And we've stayed in some pretty shady places around the world. But still, sliding that little bar across the top helps me to go to sleep at night. So I resonate with the disciples when I read in verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, double locked, triple locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Look, I don't know how they locked doors back then, if it was a bar or a lock or a key. But the point is the disciples were afraid. Right? They were afraid. Their, their leader, their teacher, their beloved rabbi, the one whom they had thought was the Messiah, he was now dead. And although Peter and John and Mary had claimed to have seen the risen Lord, you can imagine doubts remained. And even supposing Jesus was still alive, the threat from the Jewish authorities was still very real. If they could get to Jesus, then they could get to anyone. If you remember, Mary had been consumed by grief. The disciples, however, seemed to be trapped by fear. The locks on the door may have been intended to keep their enemies out, but in reality it was their own anxiety trapping them in. Think of those sleepless nights when the house creaks and the moonlight casts strange shadows and yet you feel glued to the bed in fear, right? Hardly able even to breathe when every sound makes you jump, when the thought of action makes every muscle in your body seize up, when the suggestion that you go downstairs makes your stomach turn and, and your mind starts racing. That's the disciples. They've retreated in defeat and despondency, folding in on themselves in fear. But it's in that very moment when Jesus appears among them, bringing light and life and hope, saying, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Oh, that's so much more than just, just a greeting. Peace. What a heavily weighted word for the disciples. I think just three days earlier at the, the Last Supper, Jesus himself had told them, 
Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Yet now, here they are, frozen in place by fear and deeply troubled by everything that has happened. But then Jesus comes and he stands among them right in their midst. He's real. He's risen. He's alive. They can see the nail marks on his hands and feet. They can see where the the spear pierced his side. This is no hallucination. No dream projection, no figment of their imagination. And twice Jesus offers them this greeting of peace. Not rebuke, not disappointment, not frustration, but shalom. Peace, restoration. The vast spiritual gulf that had always separated man from God. Now it's been finally bridged. The penalty paid in full. The relationship renewed and restored. And in the process, their fear is turned to faith. Faith that would soon turn the entire world upside down. Right? Upending empires. Crushing kingdoms. Sending Satan scurrying for cover. Remember, the disciples have locked themselves in the room. Trapped by their own doubts. They're nervous, they're apprehensive, but Jesus sends them out into the world. He may not have been literally pointing at the door and telling him to leave, but that's essentially what he's doing. Cross that threshold, enter out into the dazzling new world created by Jesus' resurrection power. It reminds me of the moment when when Joshua is preparing to enter the promised land, right? And the Lord comes to him and says, Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan into the land that I am giving. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Except now the kingdom has expanded in scope from a tiny plot of land to encompass the entire world. And the mission is one that would start with the apostles but continue down through the centuries to you and me today. God has breathed his spirit on you. The question is, where is fear holding you back? How has anxiety taken hold of your heart? Where are doubts and fears keeping you from doing what you know God is calling you to do? Now is not the time to hide in a corner. In fact, there was never a time to hide in the corner. The command has always, always been to go. To step out of the darkness of fear and into the light of day. To be a Christian... It's to be one who is sent out there into the world. There is no pattern of retreat for followers of Jesus because the harvest is plentiful and the workers are so few. Look, Jesus stands before you today, this morning, raised in glory. And having conquered death and defeated sin, he now calls you to serve him in his kingdom. To bring life 
into a dark, foreboding world filled with sickness, pain, suffering, and death to bring light to those sitting in darkness, to bring hope to those who are withering away in hopelessness, to bring healing to those who are consumed with guilt and shame. This book, right, these, these words, this entire service, everything that we do as followers of Christ, it's meant to drive you to belief, faith, trust in Jesus as the Messiah, Savior, the Christ, the Son of God, the hope of the world, that by believing in Him, you and your neighbors and your co-workers and your family members and your friends and your fellow students at school and the people down the street and the woman at the cash register at Jewel and the guy who drives the bus parts to your house every day, that everyone would come to have eternal life in His name. Christ our Lord is risen today. See the empty tomb and believe. Set forth on the mission that God has set for you and seize the day that lies ahead. Don't let fear hold you back. You've been set free. Be strong and courageous, trusting in His great power to guide you always to the end of the age. Well, I want to close with a prayer written by a man named Thomas Akempis who wrote this about 600 years ago. He said this. So would you pray with me? Write your blessed name, O Lord, upon my heart, there to remain so indelibly engraved That no prosperity, no adversity shall ever move me from your love. Be to me a strong tower of defense, a comforter in tribulation, a deliverer in distress, a very present help in trouble, and a guide to heaven through the many temptations and dangers of this life. Amen.